Today's episode is brought to you by McLean Middleton, providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Hi, everybody. This is Jeff Feingold, editor of New Hampshire Business Review with our Down to Business podcast for June 16th, 2021. Uh, before we get started, I want to thank Ernesto Burden for filling in for me while I was away, visiting with my granddaughter for the first time in a year and a half, which was, I have to say, I'm glad to be back, kind of, but I'd rather be with her right now, but that's all right. But fortunately, we have two excellent guests today to talk about something that's really important. So I, I think that that's what brought me dragging, I brought back kicking and screaming, but I am here. Anyway, today we have... Brendan Williams, who is the CEO of the New Hampshire Healthcare Association, and David Ross, who's the administrator of the Hillsborough County Nursing Home. And what I'd like to talk with you guys about today is really, first of all, to give people a, a, just a kind of perspective of what your what your organizations went through uh, in the last almost year and a half under COVID. I, I, we know that, that you get a lot of headlines and not always in a good way. So could just maybe from your own perspective, maybe David, you could start. Sure. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the time to, to be with you today. Um, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk with folks about the experiences here in, in nursing facilities. Um, our facility and all nursing facilities certainly started um, dealing with COVID back very early in 2020 as we prepared for the pandemic response we um, had been doing a lot of preparation as far as emergency preparedness, making sure that we had policies and procedures in place and that we were prepared for dealing with any eventual cases of COVID in our facility. Um, we were seeing it come across the country from the West Coast, so we were anxiously anticipating what was going to be happening. Um, and in preparation, we had set aside a we created an infirmary within our facility um, that could care for four patients if we needed to um, isolate any folks that had COVID um, in our facility, get them away from everybody else. And we were really confident in our ability to be able to support them in that type of setting. Um, we actually had an inspection from a representative from CMS down in Boston come down prior to our um, any outbreak within our facility. And they took a tour and they saw our infirmary and. Um, she said we had done everything right. We were well prepared. And she kind of chuckled when she left and said, good luck. And we really felt that that was an ominous message. And um, it was within a month that we had um, our first case of COVID within our facility. Um, we had been doing multiple tests. We've been doing screening of everybody within the facility. Um, I remember it was Mother's Day, Mother's Day weekend. Um, of 2020 when we had our first cases come back positive. And um, it went from one case that afternoon to three cases that evening to 30 cases within 24 hours, um, all on the same unit. Um, the infirmary closed within 24 hours and we had to relocate it to within a unit on the facility. Um, the state's response was exemplary. Um, they we reached out to New Hampshire Public Health. They were with us every step of the way. They mobilized the National Guard's mobile response team. They came out to the facility to help us with testing all of our residents and all of our staff. Um, and 
Um, we found that we had a, a lot of active cases within the facility, all that were asymptomatic or what we would now call pre-symptomatic um, within the facility, um, all isolated on one unit. Um, and that outbreak for us ended up lasting several months and moved through a couple of units within our facility that affected um, a number of residents uh, within our facility. I think it affected a about over 150 residents, um, about 60 staff members almost. Um, we lost 42 residents in that initial outbreak and it felt like a war zone. Um, there's no words to describe the experience that a facility goes through when they have an active outbreak because you are in complete isolation. No one is allowed to come into the facility. Um, residents aren't able to go out. Um, families can't come in. Um, and um, you have to create a designated wing for um, folks with that are tested positive with COVID um, to be isolated from the rest of the facility. The hardest experience, I think, was um, as we continue to repeatedly test residents and you'd have a resident who tested positive, was to communicate that with them and to have to physically bring them down to the COVID unit because um, they watched the news, they were seeing what was happening nationwide, and the fear and the acceptance and the um, and everything that goes along with that were very difficult um, to have to navigate. Um, our staff were tremendous. I cannot say enough about the people that actually work in long-term care um, about their commitment and dedication to the folks that we serve. Um, staff put themselves willingly working on a COVID unit to be able to make sure that the residents that were in their care were well cared for. The state had set up a um, emergency housing arrangement with local hotels so that staff who weren't comfortable going back home after being exposed to caring for patients, um, that they could go and stay in the hotel um, we had family members that would say, boy, that must be nice that they get to stay in a hotel. I wish I could go and stay in a hotel for um, free. Um, I don't think that anyone can really realize the commitment and dedication that it took. We had young mothers that had six-month-old children at home who did not want to um, risk passing on the virus to their family, but um, we're so dedicated to come into work that they would go and stay at the hotel so that they could still come and work. I can't imagine that there's very many folks from the general public that would make that type of sacrifice just for work and work that is not paid um, for the amount of work that it really takes, you know, really for the value that they bring. Um, but the folks that work in long-term care do it not because of the money, um, but because of their commitment and dedication. Um, so we, we closed out that outbreak and we went for a few months without any cases, but we still had to keep a lot of COVID precautions in place, screening, testing, restricting visitors. Um, and then in October of 2020, we had another outbreak. Um, we had had two units in the facility that had been unaffected by the first outbreak. Um, and then unfortunately, we had a case come in and, and, then it, and it passed through those residents um, as, as quickly. Um, and, and staff as well. Um, we've been so grateful for um, the availability of vaccines, for them to be prioritized to long-term care facilities, um, for, our, for um, the number of staff and residents who have been accepting of those vaccines so early on, 
for us, we have you know, over 75% of our staff are vaccinated. Um, almost 98% of our residents are fully vaccinated. Um, it's been so welcoming for us and comforting for us to be able to know that folks are much more greatly protected. So how we look now is um, not that dissimilar to how we looked um, a few months ago. Um, we are, in spite of the fact that the rest of the state and the community is reopening, um, we are still quite closed. Um, that we still have to screen um, all of our staff coming in, all of our visitors coming in. Um, all staff have to wear protective masks the entire time that they're here in the facility. Um, just recently, we were able to remove eye protection from for staff um, as they were um, walking through the facility, having any chance of um, contact with a resident within six feet. Um, and we still have to restrict visitation a bit to be able to make sure that we're able to maintain protection and safety for our residents. That's quite frustrating for family members, as you can understand, and for our residents when they know that they can walk into Walmart without a mask, they can go to the grocery store without a mask, but they can't come in freely as they choose and be able to come and see their parents or their, or their loved ones here, um, and equally that they can't just go out. But the risk is so great in this population because the virus does affect them disproportionately. Um, and because we are a closed environment, that it does spread quite quickly or the risk of spread is quite quickly here. Um, there was a lot of blame um, on the long-term care industry very early on about how could this happen? How could we allow this to happen? And I, you know, I, I just, I shared with everyone that I could speak to that, you know, church is closed, colleges closed, schools closed during the, during the pandemic because they could not risk people congregating together. Long-term care cannot close. Nursing homes have to stay open because these folks have no other place to go. So we have to keep them in close proximity because that's the most cost-effective way to be able to provide care to folks. Um, and when you have folks together and they're receiving the most personal and intimate care um, from staff members, then those risks are just inherent within the industry. Um, yeah. it, it is unfortunate that um, facilities have gotten blamed for outbreaks or, or chastised because of having an outbreak um, because there, you know, there was no experience with COVID prior to this. Um, facilities that have been very highly rated and have had really exemplary protocols in place um, have been really challenged to be able to, um, you know, their, their credibility has been challenged, I guess is the way to say it, that, um, you know, because they experienced outbreaks. Um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a virus that is a highly infectious. And as a, as a nation and as, as the, uh, globally, they're learning about the virus. You know, early on, we were hearing that it wasn't airborne. Um, and just recently, they've, they've shared that it is an airborne transmission. And, and, you know, we learned that very early on here, and just based on our experiences, how quickly it was passing in spite of all of our, all of our measures. Um, we are looking forward to great things to come in the months ahead as we reopen. Um, I, as, as grateful as I am for our staff here and all the work, hard work that they've done and how dedicated they've been, I am equally grateful for the support that we've had from Governor Sununu, from the Department of Health and Human Services, the New Hampshire Public Health Department. They have been amazing to be and responsive to be able to help us navigate a very challenging dynamic 
um, throughout this period. Um, you know, the yeah. past year and a half feels like a blip um, that, is, that has gone by in a second. Um, and when you realize how much time has passed, it's it's chilling. Yeah. Yeah. I just want I just want to bring Brendan in on this because Brendan, you your organization represents nursing homes around the state. Although those of the for-profit nursing homes or the non-governmental nursing homes, is that fair to say? Or correct, nonprofit and for-profit. Yes. Right. So what was the situation? It's when, I, when I'm listening to David, it sounds very familiar only because I've read so much about it and heard so much about it. Was it also the same at your member facilities as well? I mean, is it the same oh, situation? Absolutely. You know, our first outbreak here in New Hampshire occurred at a five-star facility in Manchester, a family-owned facility. Uh, I think the next outbreak that I addressed was a, a continuing care retirement community. Uh, down in Nashua, that's a nonprofit. I mean, the virus was absolutely unsparing when it came to uh, facilities, regardless of their quality and regardless of their infection control practices. Uh, we had prided ourselves as a state because we're always uh, number one or number two in the country uh, when it comes to substantial compliance with federal health survey standards. And so that's continued, actually, uh, believe it or not, throughout all of this. Uh, but this was just something that uh, no one anticipated and um, and it spread like wildfire when it got into facilities. And, you know, there were sort of amazing stories. I mean, uh, David, you know, talks about sort of fighting the virus, you know, and you'd sort of fight it room by room and ward by ward. And, uh, you know, I know a facility that managed to trap it on one floor and keep it from going to mm -hmm. another floor. And, you know, the efforts of staff throughout all of this were just absolutely exceptional. I mean, to show up each day. Uh, to a work environment uh, where you have this very infectious disease and, you know, not a great deal is known about it. Uh, certainly, you know that you can catch it and take it back to your family. And, and so many of our caregivers are, you know, single moms, you know, with kids. And, you know, so all of that anxiety associated with this, you know, at the peak uh, in the post-Thanksgiving surge, uh, we were losing an average of eight residents a day. Uh, in long-term care facilities. Altogether, we lost almost 900 residents. Uh, now the daily uh, death average is 0.1 um, because vaccination works. You know, we're number two in the nation when it comes to the ratio of uh, vaccinated uh, residents, number five when it comes to the ratio of vaccinated staff. So uh, that's great. But, uh, you know, throughout all of this, there was an enormous amount of suffering. And, uh, you know, the state was exceptional in terms of its response. Uh, they facilitated through our organization uh, weekly calls uh, with the state epidemiologists, uh, Dr. Chan and Dr. Talbot and uh, public health from DHHS the survey team. We had one of those calls today, in fact. Uh, now they're just every other week. And uh, we get the latest epidemiology, I think, for administrators like uh, David and uh, the others who were on those calls. It really was a, a lesson uh, every week in uh, sort of the evolving nature of how we understand this disease and how we can best respond to this disease. I just wanted to get a little perspective on this. You mentioned 900 deaths in long-term care facilities. How many people are resident, how many residents are there total in total? I mean, just to get a perspective on how devastating this was. Well, you'd have to count the assisted living facilities. It's harder to get a census count on, on those facilities because it would include them. Uh, there's uh, maybe 6,000 residents of nursing homes uh, throughout the state of New Hampshire. Wow. So, yeah. So we're it's, talking about a 
probably over 10 percent is that is that something I don't know because you'd have to again counting the assisted living facilities i know that you know there was a lot of talk during the pandemic about how new hampshire looked uh, bad because we yeah. had such a high proportion of deaths occurring in long-term care facilities but you have to control for the fact that we don't have the urban density of some other states uh, and frankly the uh, diversity of other states because we know that this virus hit uh, communities of color especially hard and uh, you know because uh, we're sort of spread out as a state uh, we didn't have the sort of community outbreaks that other states did in terms of the proportion of nursing home residents loss compared to other states uh, it was low uh, it just happened to be high because we lost so few people in the uh, community as a whole yeah I, I didn't i didn't mean in terms of comparing it to the general population just the idea of what you guys had to deal with what your facilities had to deal with in terms of the percentage of the residents that are sick and then dying it must have been just a devastating thing to go through it, it was frightful during those months yeah. I mean, they're family members to uh, so many of the staff. And, uh, you know, look, uh, you know, you're not unaccustomed to seeing death in nursing homes. But I remember talking to one of my board members uh, during an outbreak in uh, her facility and just saying, you know, they, she'd never seen anything like this. I mean, it was just mm. absolutely devastating uh, yeah. to see so much suffering as a consequence of this virus. And I just want to take a quick break and we'll be right back. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with headquarters in Manchester, New Hampshire and offices in Concord and Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Woburn in Boston, Massachusetts. McLean Middleton has over 100 attorneys in five locations and has been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. A full-service law firm with practice areas in corporate, tax, employment, litigation, trusts and estates, energy and environment, intellectual property and privacy, and data security, to name just a few. McLean Middleton's commitment to their clients, community, and colleagues has helped them to establish and maintain long-standing relationships as trusted advisors. Whether you are starting your business, growing your business, or preparing to sell your business, McLean Middleton has the experience to guide you through the complexities of the legal system. For a complete listing of their practice areas, attorneys, and locations, visit www.mclane.com. Okay, we're back. I'm sorry for interrupting you, David. If you want to finish I, I your thought, it, it, it really felt like a a, a mass unit um, a bit at at times oh. because you know in in long-term care, you know deaths are not unanticipated, um, but they're usually predictable after a state of decline. And with COVID, um, we found that not to be the case. A patient who was um, doing um, seemingly well or was on the mend um, one day. Um, an hour later could be um, have passed um, very quickly, that it, it was so devastating um, for um, the residents, for their family, for, for our staff to you know, be feeling like you were powerless to be able to have any effect. Um, I know our, phys our medical director here um, was really, all he could do was provide comfort meds for folks. Um, and many times families wanted to have someone sent out to the hospital um, and early on, there was really no course of treatment at the hospital other than to try to give them comfort. Um, mm -hmm. And because 
supplies and treatments were so limited uh, that you know there was a bit of rationing um, that you know really trying to take a look at with those limited resources. You know, should they be utilized on someone who was at this age um, in life or someone who was early on in life? And and that was mm. difficult for us to see as well. Um, mm. it, it, I have to say never that. Never like yeah. it. Yeah, just sound, it, I just, well, you know, even just people living their normal lives, quote unquote, normal lives throughout this, just, you know, not having to deal with, with age or having uh, an elderly parent or, it still was bad. So just imagine, I can't, I can't, I can just imagine how horrible it was. But well, I, I, I want to. I'm sorry, Jeff. No, go ahead, I was, go ahead. We have one of the nation's oldest, if not the oldest nursing home populations too. And that made uh, folks especially susceptible to the virus. I mean, I think uh, sort of an amazing thing is how many people were resilient. You know, uh, they contracted the virus and yet they lived through the experience. And mm -hmm. uh, that to me was fairly astonishing that uh, yeah, so many to bounce back from it. I know we did. We did have one one resident here that we were celebrating that she was born in the in the flu pandemic of 1918. Um, her mother died um, as a result of flu during childbirth, and um, she survived and she recovered from COVID here. Um, and it, you know, she was she was a strong woman, and it, she Doing was she was over a hundred. So yeah, over a hundred. Wow. It was fantastic. Wow, it's amazing. I just want to get to, I want to move on to this. I mean, I, 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 I want to look at like the future a little bit, or maybe a little bit more of the present. David, you alluded to this about the staff and the, you know, the dedication, but also mentioned that their pay is on, on the, you know, low, it's pretty low, low wage. And I know that we've written about this in, in the business review over, over the last couple of years, but also in the, uh, we did a piece on, on child care providers also. It's a similar situation. And there's a there's just a serious shortage of, of employees, which is not, you could say that about any, just about any industry in New Hampshire right now. But what does that look like now? Brendan, maybe you, you know, could just talk about for just for a little bit, and I want to get more specific with David after this. Yeah, we, we were facing quite a staffing crisis uh, before the pandemic. And so this is sort of back to the future for us. Uh, you know, we have, again, a uh, red hot service economy uh, that we're competing with. Uh, wages have risen in that service economy. I sort of wince when I go by a Walmart and see that they're offering $16, $17 an hour uh, because, you know, that's more than a lot of facilities can pay a licensed nursing assistant who has to incur 100 hours of training in order to work and pass two criminal background checks. You know, long-term care has always been a labor of love and not one in which you expect to get rich, but uh, you shouldn't expect to get poor either. And um, that unfortunately has been the reality for, for too long. And so uh, we've got a couple of initiatives that we've been working with the state on. Uh, one is uh, called New Hampshire Needs Caregivers. Uh, the other is a, a healthcare sector partnership and trying to identify some fixes uh, to this problem. And uh, you know, New Hampshire Needs Caregivers is recruiting LNAs, you know, one by one. You know, that's how we measure success. But we'd actually seen a net loss of licensed nursing assistants in our state prior to the pandemic, which is pretty remarkable. And I'm not talking just for nursing homes, available to all healthcare sectors, whether they be, uh, you know, hospitals or community health clinics. And so we've got to figure out a way of creating New Hampshire opportunity here for New Hampshire residents because we lose a lot of folks, you know, to Massachusetts commuting each day to work over there. I saw that Vermont Tech is now due to a one-time appropriation offering free tuition for um, 
those going into its nursing programs. Uh, something like that here, uh, maybe using the American Rescue Plan Act funds, uh, would be great, you know, encouraging people to go into long-term care. I talked to Senator Sheen's office about this. Uh, it's something that they're interested in, maybe some federal funds, uh, but it could be a state initiative as well, uh, given the uh, American Rescue Plan funds. What, now, what what is that? That's something that, that you look forward to, but what about, is there something, you mentioned before we went on, we saw, saw a recording about there's an increase in the payments for, to, for, from Medicaid yeah, it's been it's in the current budget, and that and that's something that you know our listeners probably are pretty aware of, just in terms of just not it's not just long-term care facilities; it's hospitals in general not being most, getting paid reimbursement rates. Most, most residents uh, in a nursing home are on Medicaid, and unlike a hospital, we don't have the uh, private insurance uh, revenue flow, so hospitals have a statistically small uh, portion of residents who are uh, on Medicaid, or excuse me, uh, mm -hmm. patients who are Medicaid nursing homes. Uh, the bulk of uh, residents are on Medicaid. And so the fact that the general court has uh, agreed to increase Medicaid rates is extraordinarily helpful. We're still going to need some one-time assistance uh, through the American Rescue Plan Act dollars that have come to the state just to make facilities whole. One of the problems is that uh, the censuses or the occupancy of each facility has uh, declined so significantly uh, throughout the pandemic that uh, we're needing to rebuild that occupancy. Typically, we we run uh, higher than the national average uh, here in New Hampshire because we're we're an older state. You know, we're the second oldest by population state in the country, and we'll get there. But it's going to take time, and so uh, addressing some of the uh, toll of this uh, pandemic is going to take assistance beyond Medicaid rates. Yeah, and in terms of in terms of LNAs, people who work with with uh, work in working you know, in living facilities, long term care facilities, you know, New Hampshire is either the first or second oldest state in the country. Depends Maine, Maine. Well, Maine and Vermont always we're always fighting for number one among the three states. We're going to so overtake. That, yeah, yeah. So this is so this is something that's really important because we're talking about an, an aging population. There'll be more people going into your facilities, needing those services, and lo and behold, we have this really very serious labor shortage. I mean, uh, David, in, in in your facility, do you do you currently have open positions that you would like to fill? Yeah, we have over a hundred open positions at our facility currently, um, and. Wow. And that's and you know it's we started the pandemic with almost a hundred open positions um, because of the shortage that was already in place before. Um, now we have over a hundred positions open just in our nursing department alone, um, mm. trying to make sure that we're providing care to folks. Um, to Brendan's point is that you know in addition to the labor shortage, it's it's also the the impact that we have on overall occupancy. You know, our, our occupancy typically runs over 90% here in the facility. Um, and you know we run close to 98% typically, we drop down to under 70% during um, you know, the course of the, of the pandemic. Um, and we've been slowly building that. Um, our ability to build that, that census um, is impacted by our ability to staff the building. And if we don't have those those folks in working here, we can't take care of folks responsibly. Um, and it, and to your point that the population is aging, that we have to really dedicate appropriate resources to be able to build a meaningful workforce. It is shameful that folks 
um, find that working at Walmart or Target is a viable alternative to working in healthcare um, because the pay can be more competitive. Um, I think that we have to really aggressively look at where, what do we value um, and who do we value um, um, and, and, and put our resources there accordingly to be able to inspire the right people to go into the field for the right reasons. To, to Brendan's point is that um, you know, no one expects to get rich working in healthcare, but you shouldn't have to get poor um, mm. to, to choose to work in healthcare. And I think um, that's, an, that's an excellent point that it, it should be um, a, a career because it is a very noble career. It should be one that you can also earn a, a, a livable wage and, and feel good about what you're doing. I, I've seen, I, I know I've seen this recently that this, there was a proposal or a plan for the state to continue. They, they had those $5 an hour uh, payment bonus or whatever during the height of COVID to make that more permanent, have some kind of way for a state provided subsidy or some kind of subsidy to help increase the wages. Is there, is that a, is that something that could become a reality? It doesn't quite sound like a New Hampshire type of reality, but you never, I mean, people might have had their, their eyes open though. I mean, is there something going on with that? I mean, I think temporary, we had a temporary stipend during the yeah. um, outbreak um, by a governor's emergency order. And that was wonderful. The long-term care stabilization program um, allowed folks to receive a stipend each week for working in long-term care. Um, that really helped offset the incentive that folks had with the with the $600 a week um, federal addition to unemployment insurance. So, um, uh, you know, that so that helps keep people from leaving us to go collect unemployment where they could earn potentially more. Um, mm. That um, you know, that's not you know likely a long-term plan for us um, for sure. You know, that program isn't in place currently. Um, but we do need to consider what is going to be the right incentive. It was yeah. a very welcome initiative by uh, Governor Sununu using uh, CARES Act funds, which, you know, of course, are, are gone now for the most part. Uh, but really what it did most is uh, help us to retain uh, workers, not really so much recruit workers. And, and it's that recruitment, too, that we need to do. And uh, it's how, how do you get there? And I think, again, there's an opportunity for innovation using the American Rescue Plan act dollars uh through some one-time expenditures and um mm. so we'll see how the legislative fiscal committee and the governor uh choose to allocate some of those funds yeah because there, there's a big chunk of change coming down the pike so there's, yeah. there's a lot of opportunities for that and and it's now, now, yeah now that we're now that the the pandemic is starting to wind down mm -hmm. i think you know we definitely are concerned about fatigue and burnout within our workforce the folks that have gotten us through this crisis are now picking up their heads a bit and saying, you know, do I have the reserves in my tank to continue doing this type of work? Um, we I was just this morning, I was talking with someone um, who works outside of healthcare and said they posted a job um, in an office. They had 70 applicants uh, apply for this one job. 50 of them were healthcare workers. And this is not wow. a, this is not a, a healthcare employer. Um, mm. It is completely outside of the field. She was really surprised that she said something must be going on that everyone's looking to leave. And um, I think folks outside of the industry just don't understand the experience that folks inside healthcare um, have lived through. Yeah, I just want to. If you wanted to have, have the last word, Brendan, because I, I have to. Well, <laughs> I, I, 
I have confidence that our state and looking at this situation under the leadership of Governor Sununu and uh, Commissioner Lori Shibanet at DHHS will come up a w with a way to address this situation. Uh, people forget uh, the governor's uh, state of the state address that occurred just before the pandemic uh, really started. Uh, he was addressing long-term care as an issue that he really wanted to focus on and focus his new commissioner on uh, with uh, an idea to come up with uh, a plan in, I think, 90 days. And then it wasn't but weeks after that that the uh, pandemic started. So very, on hold. <laughs> very well, welcome to your new job for Commissioner Shibanat. <laughs> Unbelievable right. experience for Governor Sununu. And uh, so we're hopeful yeah. that you know, going forward, uh, we can uh, be proactive and identify some ways of addressing these issues. Yeah, I yeah I, I wish you guys luck in this, and actually I wish the state luck in this. And I, maybe we can have you on some other time, maybe in another several months, just check up and see how things are going, and maybe it'll be some good news. Which be we, welcome that. we welcome the opportunity to hear some Williams, good news, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Brendan Williams of the New Hampshire Healthcare Association and David Ross of the New Hillsborough County Nursing Home. I really appreciate you joining us, and take care, everybody. Take care Thank now. You. Thank you so much.